Chapter 18, Part 2 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18, Part 2 The Personality of Clara Barton. There were times when Clara Barton felt keenly her isolation. But in 1911, she recorded in her diary some of the domestic trials of some of her friends and added, after all, aloneness is not the worst thing in the world. While extremely modest, Clara Barton was far from being a prude. She was never terrified by appeals to respectability, nor could she be frightened by any warning concerning men or women whom gossip condemned. In 1884, when she was on her steamboat, Joseph V. Throop, assisting in the Ohio River floods, the boat one night tied up at a landing, and a goodly number of people came on board. Among the rest were two young women. One of the prominent ladies of the town found opportunity to whisper to her, that these were young women whose social standing was not above question. Then they will need help all the more, she said, and she gave those two girls an hour of her evening. Such warnings she often received, and far from accepting them as her basis of discrimination, she invariably reacted in the other direction. She never undertook any work without first carefully thinking it through in an effort to discover just where it was to end and how it was to be provided for. She had no sympathy with people who start good movements for other people to support when their well-meant but poorly reckoned endeavor fails. They get hold of a log they can't lift, she said and they make a great call for someone to come and lift it for them. That was never the way in which she did things. She thought them through in advance. Clara Barton worked slowly. While she formed her decisions promptly in emergencies, she formulated them carefully and with painful precision. It was not by doing things easily she accomplished so much, but by rising early and working late and keeping constantly at the thing she wanted to do. She attempted to use stenographic assistance, but with only moderate success. She had to work out her letters and addresses in her own way. A certain kind of routine work her secretaries did for her, to her great relief, but her real work she had to do herself. She coveted the ability to work more rapidly. She admired that ability and perhaps overvalued it in others. She once wrote to me, Where do you find time to do so many things? One of the griefs of my life is to see other persons getting things done, really done, and I accomplish so little. I don't see how they do it. No more could they see how she did it. 
but she did it by working with an industry and devotion that never found an easy way of accomplishing results. A friend of hers was deeply interested in a movement for which he wished the endorsement of Clara Barton. She believed in the work he was doing and was willing to commend it, but she wanted to know a little more about it, and then she wanted time to think out what she wanted to say about it. He became very desirous of having her commendation in time for a particular use, and his wife invited Clara Barton to their home to dine. She willingly accepted and enjoyed the visit. She knew the family and held them in high esteem. After dinner and some conversation, the man produced a typewritten statement of some length which he had prepared endorsing his work. This he read to her, and she liked it. But when she understood that he had prepared this for her to sign, she was shocked. She refused to sign it. Her friend could not at first understand her scruples. Did she not believe in this work? She did. Had she not expressed to him her approval, and signified her willingness to furnish him a statement which he would be at liberty to publish? She had. Had she not listened to his reading of this very statement with expressions of hearty approval? She had. Was there anything in it she would like to change? If so, she was at liberty to make any erasure or interlineation she desired. No, there was nothing she cared to change, except that she cared to change everything in it. He assured her that he was asking nothing of her which men of the highest honor did not do constantly, that in a busy world people had to avail themselves of assistance such as he offered her, that his own standards of honor were high, and he would never think of asking her to sign a statement which did not fully express her own convictions. All this she understood, and she did not censure him, but she could not do what he asked of her. The statement which he had prepared was not hers. The opinions expressed were in full accord with her own, and the language was as good as any she could have chosen, and there was nothing in the document to which she could object, but it was not hers. Her idea of a document which she could sign as her own was one which she should have thought out on first wakening, perhaps in the middle of the night, and sketched in pencil on the pages of the little pad at the head of her bed and then thoughtfully copied in her own hand with careful weighing of each word and phrase. That would have been her own. Certainly that was a needlessly narrow conception of the extent to which she might honorably have employed the minds and willing hands of others in her own too heavy toil but it was a conception grounded in the highest possible conviction of honor. Clara Barton was a self-willed woman. So was Mother Bickerdyke, 
So was Dorothea Dix. So, most emphatically and uncomfortably for those who withstood her, was Florence Nightingale. If comparisons were in order, which they certainly are not, she was not the least considerate of the four of other people's opinion, nor most reluctant to admit herself in the wrong. Like Florence Nightingale, she had opportunities of marriage in her youth, and resolutely turned to other work under force of a strong conviction, and that conviction had mighty impelling power. Lighten Strachey, in his remarkably penetrating sketch, says, Everyone knows the popular conception of Florence Nightingale, the saintly, self-sacrificing woman, the delicate maiden of high degree, who threw aside the pleasures of a life of ease to succor the afflicted, the lady with the lamp, gliding through the horrors of the hospital at Scutari, and consecrating with the radiance of her goodness the dying soldier's couch. The vision is familiar to all. But the truth was different. The Miss Nightingale of fact was not as facile as fancy painted her. She worked in another fashion, and toward another end. She moved under the stress of an impetus which finds no place in the popular imagination. A demon possessed her. Now demons, whatever else they may be, are full of interest. And so it happens that in the real Miss Nightingale there was more that was interesting than in the legendary one. There was also less that was agreeable. The disposition of Florence Nightingale lacked much of being angelic. When she encountered the stupidity of official red tape or the brutality and indifference of army surgeons, her words blistered. She hurled invectives, and she employed sarcastic nicknames, and she denounced everything and everybody who opposed her. But when she arrived in Scutari, forty-two wounded men out of every hundred were dying, and when she left them, her hospital showed a death rate of twenty-two out of every thousand. Clara Barton had a tongue less sharp than Florence Nightingale's, but she had a will no less inflexible. Both women had soft voices, which they never raised. Men fled from the soft tones and vitriolic words of Florence Nightingale. When Clara Barton grew angry, she lowered her voice. Instead of a woman's shrill falsetto, men heard a deep and determined tone quietly affirming that the thing was to be done in this way and in no other. Few men withstood that tone. Some readers of this book, I am sure, have been shocked to read the opinion of Dr. Bellows of the Sanitary Commission concerning the uselessness and worse of the ordinary woman nurse in war hospitals. That opinion was shared by Dorothea Dix, by Clara Barton, and to an even greater degree by Florence Nightingale. Not very long after Florence Nightingale had reached Scutari, 
with her thirty-eight nurses, and about the time when she was having to ship some of them back, her official friends in England thought to win her eternal gratitude by sending to her forty-six additional nurses, under the personal direction of her old friend Miss Stanley. But she refused to accept them, and sent in her resignation. She would not have these women scampering through the wards, and upsetting all her regulations. They are like troublesome children, she said. Even the religious ones were given to what she called spiritual flirtations with the soldiers. And as for those who had not the fear of God or the dread of hell-fire, there were drunken orderlies and dissolute officers and unmarried chaplains to be considered. I have wondered what Dorothea Dix would have said if forty-six nurses not of her selection had been suddenly dumped upon her. I think she would have gone into hysterics and shipped them all back. Clara Barton, I believe— would have set them to emptying slops and scrubbing floors till she found the few out of whom she could make nurses. She would not have written the kind of letters about them which Florence Nightingale wrote. She would have scolded a little in her diary, and have written the committee who sent them a letter of thanks, requesting them not to send any more until she asked for them, and meantime to send her some bandages and some lemons. But she would have felt much as Florence Nightingale felt. They were both self-willed women. They needed all their willpower. It was well they had it. Many interesting parallels suggest themselves between the work of Clara Barton and that of Florence Nightingale. They were contemporary in a remarkable degree. Florence Nightingale was a few months the older, and died a few months sooner than Clara Barton, but both lived to be more than ninety years of age. Miss Nightingale was born May twelfth, eighteen twenty, and died August thirteenth, nineteen ten. Clara Barton was born December twenty fifth, eighteen twenty one, and died April twelfth, nineteen twelve. They faced the question of marriage in much the same fashion, and each one gave herself in much the same spirit to her life task. They were not unlike in their religious faith and in its practical expression. The long, confidential letters of Florence Nightingale, written painfully when she ought to have been in bed, remind us of the detailed epistles which clara barton found time to write mostly late at night each had a love of humour which stood her in good stead miss barton's had less sting in it than that of miss nightingale but otherwise it was not unlike and it was a great help to both of them each had a gentle voice and each knew how to use it effectively without raising it each protested to the end of her life that her real work was not that of the popular imagination that of personally ministering to any considerable number of sick or wounded soldiers 
but a work of direction and organization, and neither succeeded in making the public believe it. Not long before her death, Clara Barton relieved her mind in her diary concerning the sort of newspaper article which invented fairy tales of this sort. Oh, these woman reporters, she said in her diary, they never get anything right. They are forever telling and inventing the same old kind of gush. Florence Nightingale also had a profound distrust of the limitations of members of her own sex. But also she knew, as did Clara Barton, the brutality, the stupidity, and the inefficiency of men. Miss Nightingale often wondered if there were in all the army enough officers of sympathy and conscience to have saved Sodom. Sometimes she doubted if there was one. All the women who went to the battlefront and were worth their car fare were women of strong will. Mother Bickerdyke, in her rough and great-hearted way, was a lady. But when she faced an incompetent surgeon and drove him out of the hospital and he appealed to General Sherman, the general confessed himself powerless. She ranks me, he said. Dorothea Dix was a lady to the very depth of her sensitive soul, a devoted, consecrated Christian lady. But she could be very properly disagreeable on occasion, and she brooked no interference with her authority. Florence Nightingale was a lady, born and bred, but vitriol was mild compared to some of her outbursts. Clara Barton was a lady to her very fingertips, and she had had enough of experience in Washington among officials and men of influence, so that she knew how, on occasion, to be much more diplomatic and gracious than most other women with her responsibilities. Moreover, she shrank from giving pain, and was careful of her words but she had as strong a will as had Florence Nightingale, and, while she was as a rule more amiable than that lady in her more violent moods, she got things done. People sometimes found her arbitrary, impatient, and obstinate. Had she been less so, it had gone hard with the interests which she cherished." She was capable of being arbitrary, impatient, and obstinate, and the same is true of each of the other women whom her name calls to mind. But among them she was not the least gentle, considerate, and self-forgetful. She required that things should move, and move in the direction of her decision. But she was at heart, and on most occasions in her demeanor, quiet, gentle, affectionate, and calm. Clara Barden had many devoted and loyal friends. They were held by her in warm and enduring affection. And some of them, for her sake and her work's sake, made generous sacrifices. She had other friends who came to her in bursts of generous enthusiasm. These also were in good part sincere, 
and if some of them found her habits so simple and her task so heavy as to afford them smaller share than they had hoped in personal association with her, they were none the less generally firm in their friendship. It was not to be expected that everyone could live permanently on her high plane of single-mindedness. Some of her friends were a trial to her, for it was not easy for her to understand why, when they once knew the task she was working at, they did not manifest stability of purpose and perseverance and well-doing. But these she counted her friends. When one of these left her roof because the fare was too plain, Clara Barton said, she is not willing to wash herself seven times in Jordan. There were others, and in the course of her long life there were a number of them, who came to her with ardent protestations of affection and of devotion to her cause, who in time wearied of the strain, or resented her strong hand in management, or who came to believe that they themselves could do better the work which she had undertaken. Some of them betrayed her most sacred confidences, and returned her evil for good. Few women were so ill-fitted by nature to bear this kind of disappointment as Clara Barton. She was morbidly sensitive, and given to self-accusation. How unworthy she must be, she thought, if these persons did not continue to love her. The wounds of their defection went unhealed. Yet here was one of the finest triumphs of her nature. She never cherished permanent resentment. One time a friend of hers recalled to her a peculiarly cruel thing that had been done to her some years previous and Clara Barton did not seem to understand what she was talking about. "'Don't you remember the wrong that was done you?' she was asked. Thoughtfully and calmly she answered, "'No, I distinctly remember forgetting that.' Friends deserted Clara Barton, but she never deserted a friend. If a friend of hers was evil spoken against, that only increased her loyalty. She would not believe evil unless compelled to do so, and if compelled, she interpreted the wrong, if possible, in terms of charity. Only baseness and treachery and betrayal of trust won her scorn. At one time, in connection with her relief work on the rivers, a man who had acted as her local agent was arrested for burglary. She was at a distance and wires were down. She refused to believe him guilty. When later details made it impossible to doubt that he had done essentially the deed with which he was charged, she still believed that there must be some explanation. Later it developed that the offense was technical and grew out of a dispute as to the ownership of certain premises which he had entered, and the other claimant, instead of suing him for trespass, sought to do him the greater injury by having him arrested for burglary. 
how the question of the ownership of the property was ultimately settled i do not know but her confidence in the man as one incapable of willful crime was justified consul general hitz of switzerland long her friend became a banker in washington apparently he had little talent for the banking business and undertook to finance the Swedenborgian church of which he was a member out of the revenues of the bank of his guilt before the law there appears to have been no question as to his essential honesty clara barton had no doubt she did not condone the offence nor question that the amount taken must be made good but she did not believe that so good a man and so true a friend ought to remain in prison after high influence had been exercised unavailingly on his behalf she persisted and he was released End of chapter eighteen part two